Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. Please help by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast if you're watching this on YouTube or BitChute. These are all free and help out a great deal. Word of mouth is how shows like this reach more people who are interested. Another way you can support this podcast is by way of a PayPal tip jar. These podcasts are like articles you would read in a magazine. In those times, writers were paid by the magazine. Readers would pay a small amount to read on topics they were interested in. Now, you can get content easily, but people who create it do not get any compensation unless those who like it contribute. You can leave a donation of any amount you like or set up a monthly donation just like Patreon or Subscribestar. There's a link in the description. I sincerely appreciate your interest and support. A major topic of interest which has emerged in the Aikido community in the last few years is Aikido's relationship with real violence. Questions about whether Aikido is useful or relevant to self-defense are abundant, with a few anecdotes in support of it. Alongside these anecdotes come some pretty solid and compelling visuals which tear down Aikido's credibility as being useful for dealing with real violence. I've discussed these on previous episodes, so I won't go into deeper detail on them again here. What is clear is that there is understandable interest in adjusting how Aikido is trained to better reflect the realities of live violence so that practitioners are better prepared to survive it should it happen to them. It's just my belief, but this is the original and primary focus of all martial arts to prevail against someone who is trying to physically dominate you. Almost all martial art practitioners will admit that this is at least part of what draws them to train martial arts. The health and athletic benefits martial art training offers can be had from other activities, such as sports, dancing, yoga, gymnastics, and a host of others. In many cases, they offer better physical benefits than Aikido training does. The self-defense aspect attracts and keeps people in Aikido. It is an issue in Aikido, and in many other martial arts, that training often does not address preparing students for the realities of physical violence. This is the responsibility of the instructor. What almost all martial arts instructors do well is teach techniques. These are the basic tools the art is made of. It's kind of like a craftsman who builds a house. He needs to know how to hammer in nails, use a tape measure to measure properly, how to cut lumber to the correct length, etc. Without knowing these tools reasonably well, a craftsman isn't much of a craftsman. The next set of skills is actually building the house, which consists of an entirely different set of skills and experience. He will employ the skills using the tools, which are important, but just knowing the tools isn't nearly enough. This is where a lot of martial arts experience a steep drop-off in what they teach. They do not go very far into the realities of violence and are content with teaching pattern katas and honing technique for most of the practice time. Arts which include some kind of sparring or freestyle practice get practitioners more used to active attackers. In Aikido, this would consist of jiwaza or randori practice. From what I've heard over the years from Aikido practitioners from all over the world is that not many dojos practice either of these at all. The ones that do, don't do it very often. That's a shame because it is in those areas where the tools of Aikido are put to work in a more broad application, which feels far more like reality than the isolated training of technique done in paired kata practice. There are a couple of reasons I think Aikido practice often limits itself to paired kata practice. Obviously, the first influence is the instructor leading the class. It's easy to show a technique and have students practice it, focusing on the minutiae of improving it. It's easy for an instructor to control a class by doing this. It's also easy and straightforward to demonstrate technique in this way. I think many instructors teach this way because that's the way that they were taught. We tend to pass along what we learned in the way that we have learned it. 
Another problem is that instructors sometimes lose their passion and become kind of lazy. When your heart isn't in teaching, you tend to do what you think is just enough to get by. In the case of Aikido, it's easy to think that during the class, it's enough to shore up a particular set of techniques so students have something to practice and get a little better at it. A few years of this and training starts to feel lifeless. Aikido training tends to dwell at the rudimentary levels, which is simple paired kata. One reason, I think, is instructors who are just not passionate about teaching anymore. Maybe they never were and are teaching out of a feeling of obligation and not because that's where their heart has guided them. I've seen this happen personally. A senpai of mine once opened his own dojo because he felt that at his advanced Yudansha rank, it was what was expected. He was a personable fellow and a remarkable technician, even a pretty good teacher. But since teaching really wasn't his passion or interest, he had a hard time keeping his dojo open. He closed his dojo within a couple of years and was happy to realize when he wasn't required to keep it going. You should teach because you love to do it, not because you feel obligated to. Another common problem is burnout. Instructor burnout can happen for a variety of reasons, both internal and external. I don't blame an instructor for being burned out. There's a lot of pressures on running a school and being an instructor. I appreciate and applaud those instructors who still have their passion and fire for teaching and bringing out the best in their students. I've experienced burnout in other areas, and the passion is not something which can be forced. You have it or you don't, and it's strongly affected by many factors. The other factor at play, and this is probably the biggest issue, is that many instructors have very little, if any, experience or training in real violence. You cannot teach what you never learned and do not understand. That doesn't mean that you need to turn yourself into a street or sport fighter to be qualified to instruct. It means that you need to educate yourself and get training from those who are experienced in real violence. This will do wonders for your understanding, which you can then turn into improving your training. Once that happens, the quality of your instruction will improve drastically. It is apparent that a great many instructors and senior practitioners are so out of the loop about how to train for reality that they tend to think the only way to do it is engage in full-speed, high-intensity fighting, perhaps with gloves and protective gear to help avoid injuries. This is not true at all, but the statements about it show how alien the concept of training for reality is to the Aikido community in general. There's great room for improvement here, and I'm going to get into specifics on how to do that in a bit. Unfortunately, martial arts instructors tend to slip into a comfort zone of what they already know, and lose the desire to push themselves beyond their current skill sets. The reason is that if you're really good at your specialty, it slams the ego to become a beginner in something new. The result is that experienced practitioners tend to enjoy being a big fish in their little pond and don't want to either go be a small fish in another pond or seek larger waters to go swim in. For those instructors who are passionate about improving themselves, their students, and incorporate more reality into their training, I'm sharing what I've found as useful over the years. The first one I mentioned already, which is finding people with first-hand experience in real violence and learning everything you can from them. The closer you get to original sources, the better. Remember, communication starts getting a little distorted with each person it goes through. The more people information tends to go through, the more distorted it gets. I think traditional martial arts of all kinds have many of these distortions. They are allowed to remain and magnify when an art does not include some kind of objective pressure testing element. We must be honest and admit that Aikido, by and large, lacks such objective pressure testing. Shotokan and Yoshinkan Aikido have competitions which provide a live competitive element, but I think their very limited rule set makes them more sport-flavored than reality-based. 
Not to say that what they do isn't good. It certainly is better than merely doing paired kata practice constantly. If you want to get into more reality-based training, the first thing is to realize that, like life, you have limited time available. If you add something to your curriculum, you must remove something else to make time for it. This was my biggest concern as I contemplated adding new things to my classes. As I thought this through, I realized two important things. First is that teaching time is precious, very precious. It's important to get the most out of the limited time that I have on the mat with my students. Second, paired kata and a great deal of the typical Aikido method we all learn is so highly focused on specific aspects that time could be better spent. As I say this, I realize it's a complex concept I'm describing and it will be easy for this statement to be taken the wrong way. So let me explain it in full. It's certainly important to isolate training to get familiar with the tools. For example, a craftsman needs to understand how a circular saw works and how to use it properly. The same goes for any Aikido technique. There's a time and a place in the training cycle to teach these tools and even work on them more over time. A martial artist can and should consistently keep working on honing his techniques further. As he does this, he makes the most of training time by working on putting those techniques together in application and situations which more closely emulate the chaos of real-world violence. I'll get into more detail on that in a bit, but before I do, I want to cover the training reflex. This is something that also tends to get overlooked in paired kata practice, because that exercise is designed to work on other factors. What I am talking about is the instant reflex when under stress in a real violent situation. This is something good training is designed to build. It's something any good instructor keeps in the forefront of their mind when they are training students for self-defense. A story one of my instructors passed to me came from a woman out on the west coast who was a fifth degree black belt in a style of karate. I don't recall which one exactly. She told this story as a lesson for others who could learn from her experience. Her training constantly reinforced the reaction to drop into a strong and powerful stance, strengthen her body so that it was rigid. From this base, kicks and strikes could be very powerful. Many styles of karate adopt this very same methodology, and it has its valid points. In her case, she was grabbed from behind in a parking ramp, and her training kicked in instantly. Before she could even think, her body dropped and went strong, ready to move powerfully as it had done countless times before. Unfortunately, the situation she was in was not the right one for the reaction her body had been trained for. Because her body was rigid, it was very easy to lift off the ground, which her attacker did. He raised her up off the ground, turned her in the air, and slammed her onto the pavement. Being airborne, she was in no position to execute any of the powerful movements or counterattacks that she was trained to do. All of her training was now not applicable because it assumed that she would be on the ground. There was nothing for her to do except go along for the ride. This story was told to me to describe that relaxation was more effective than rigidity or strength, and that if you stayed relaxed as you sink your body, you're much harder to lift off the ground. It is a valid point, but the story also reinforces the point that if your training does not cover real situations, you can be left without an answer when it happens. This story also describes what happens when your training reinforces a response, which is probably the worst one you could have in such a situation. In her case, she hit the ground so hard it stunned her, and she was subsequently raped. The consequences of failure in the real world can be severe, and my heart goes out to this woman. I would also hate to be the instructor who learned his students suffered because the training I put her through, which she executed perfectly, failed her and that I actually contributed to that horrific outcome. Granted, in real violence, you can do everything right and still be defeated, but I see this story as a catastrophic failure of training. 
I'm sure those rigid stances and strong body movements look impressive in a dojo, where you can hear gi sleeves snapping all over the place. As impressive as that is, it turns my stomach thinking of what she went through because she was taught the wrong response for that situation. The stakes are too high to take martial arts training lightly. We as instructors have a duty to students who are counting on what they learn to give them a better chance of survival, not a worse one. Another story about training responses is one of my favorite reminders of being careful about how we practice. It comes from a police officer who trained in, I believe it was Kali. He was quite experienced and had copious amounts of training in knife disarms. The Filipino arts, Kali and Eskrima and such, are what I refer to as speed-based arts, and their practitioners tend to have very fast hands. This officer would train as they all did, where the attacker would stab at him, he would move like lightning and disarm the attacker, then quickly turn the knife around and hand the knife back to his partner to do another repetition. The faster you do this, the faster you disarm the attacker. The faster you hand the knife back to your training partner, the more repetitions you can do, and therefore the better you get at doing the disarm. The theory is sound, or at least it appears sound. Then the day came that it happened for real. A perp pulled a knife on the cop who disarmed him in the blink of an eye. His brain followed the program it had installed through hours of practice, and before he could think, he turned the knife around and handed it to the perp who then grabbed it and resumed his attack. The cop now had to solve his problem a second time. This problem came entirely from the habits he built in his own training, even though they seemed to be viable at the time and served a purpose in the dojo. They were partially sound, meaning that the disarm worked when it needed to. However, it was not sound in that the repetitions included a very bad habit which could have gotten him killed when it happened for real. We must be very careful about how we train and not let our training become dojo sanitized. One of the first things instructors often do to more closely simulate reality is to train in street clothing instead of typical uniforms. This is not a bad idea, but I think the benefits are somewhat limited. Things do change up a bit when your attacker is wearing a t-shirt instead of a sturdy jacket, particularly if your art relies on a grip of the garment. Judo and Jiu-Jitsu are widely known for using garment grips to control their opponents. These arts are still valid when a sturdy garment is not available, but the techniques need to be altered to accommodate not having the ability to apply the same grips. I find since Aikido doesn't rely on garment gripping as much as Judo or Jiu-Jitsu and tends to go to the body itself, different clothing doesn't change things up too much. The notable exception would be garments which make the body more difficult to find, such as oversized hoodies or jackets with really long or bulky sleeves. Adornments such as leather wrist bracers and cuffs could interfere with certain grips, so that's a variable one might run into in real life. Wearing these in training would build some familiarity with how to deal with them. What I find is far more applicable to adjusting for reality is both footwear and the surface that we're training on. These affect movement a great deal, so much so that I think it's necessary to do movement practice in your normal footwear on as many surfaces as you can, especially those that you are on normally. Pavement and carpeting both come to mind. It would also be very helpful to practice on dirt, grass, gravel, and sand as well. It's also excellent practice to move on uneven ground. Many small adjustments are necessary to move well on rougher uneven ground. A smooth, flat mat will not familiarize you with what is needed to move on ground which has debris, holes, and ruts. One misstep can mean you are unstable or could trip and fall. It's well worth training on all kinds of surfaces with the footwear you normally wear. In doing so, you may well rethink your normal footwear choices. Sandals and flip-flops are usually the first casualty when people train in them and come to realize that they are horrible when you need to move well. 
It's also worth noting that thugs and criminals often look at footwear when they are assessing potential targets. If someone is wearing impractical footwear, that is, something they cannot run or move in, they know that they have someone who can't maneuver or get away easily. Just something to consider. It doesn't take tremendous observation skills to notice the difference between a dojo environment and real-world environments where violence tends to happen. Dojo and practice rooms tend to be open floors with no obstacles. There's usually plenty of room to move in any direction. Videos and police reports of real fights and assaults paint a much different picture. Real-world violence tends to happen when there is fairly limited space and obstacles are all around. I'm not just talking about bars, which is where many people's minds automatically go when they think of fights. Assaults and violence tend to happen in bathrooms, stairwells, corridors, alleyways, or countless other areas where space is limited. Why is this? There aren't many places where there are wide open areas. Even the one you would normally think of first, a parking lot, would only be wide open if it was empty. If there are cars parked there, the spaces between them would limit your movement options. In a parking ramp, there will be walls and pillars around as well. The world is made up of fairly confined spaces. That's just the way the world is. Take a look sometime when you're out and about and think about performing technique in that spot. Could be a restaurant, store, workplace, or your own living room. How much space would you have to maneuver if you had to? If you performed a throwing technique, would you have enough space for it? Could your throw be foiled by your uke grabbing onto or bracing against something? These are significant factors that don't exist on the dojo floor, but can have profound effects on the success or failure of your technique. One of the things I do with my students is take them into one of the changing rooms to see just how different it feels to be in a small area when faced with an attacker. There are advantages and disadvantages in being in a confined space. The one who can deal with the space better will likely survive and come out well. The one who does not have a firm understanding of how to deal with the space they are in is in deep trouble. Predators tend to be good at this skill and have an eye for finding prey who isn't. This doesn't bode well for the target. When all you want is money, or whatever it is, the last thing you want is your prey escaping. It's far easier to corner your target and extract what you want from them as they are hemmed in. This is why public bathrooms are so dangerous. There is usually only one way in or out. I strongly recommend you train in confined spaces and get used to what it offers and how you adjust your tactics and strategy to accommodate it. As you explore it, try corridors, tiny rooms like bathrooms, and stairwells. The stairs offer a very challenging environment and pose a remarkable danger of slipping and falling. The additional danger is that gudu kemi in a stairwell is likely not going to help much. Any fall is more likely to result in injury due to the sharp corners of the steps. Another environment I really like training is something we experience all the time, but it's usually never done in a dojo, which is when the lights are out and you can barely see. Whenever I do this, one remarkable thing happens to everyone. They bring their hands up instinctively to protect their heads. Although I mention this in class all the time, it's tempting to start with your hands down at your sides. This is understandable considering if you were totally surprised by an ambush, your hands would probably be down at your sides. However, once you have perceived a potential threat, your hands should come up and be somewhere in front of you. They can be in a casual position rather than a fighting guard, but your hands should not be in your pockets, hanging at your side, or tied up holding something. They must be ready to use. If you can get them to a good starting point, even if there's only the tiniest chance you might be attacked, then get them up. As the old saying goes in regards to preparing for an emergency, it's better to be an hour early than a minute late.
When I turn out the lights, everyone's hands come up. It's something I felt the first time my instructor shut off the lights, and I notice everyone experiences the same thing I did. Of course, it's a martial arts class, so they know they are about to get punched or grabbed. The instinct of getting your hands up kicks in really well when you cannot clearly see the people around you. A lot of attacks happen in darkness. Turning the lights out can also simulate other visual distortions, such as flashing or blinding lights, rain or sweat in the eyes, or numerous other problems with being able to see clearly. I'll note that when I turn out the lights in the dojo, it's not complete blackness. There's a little bit of light, so people can make out someone in front of them, but it's not clear enough to see the features, such as the hands or the exact body posture or position. The lesson of getting your hands up is driven home with training in low light conditions. If you train to operate in darkness, that will help prepare a student for having to protect themselves in the dark. They will have a better chance if they don't feel like they are operating in a foreign environment. The goal is to build confidence, and you do that through practicing in the environment until it becomes familiar. A major oversight by a great deal of martial arts training is assumed your attacker is always in front of you. Most often, paired kata is done with the attacker in front of you so that you can watch his approach. The idea that you should act preemptively and lead the attack is valid, but it's not always possible. Modern Aikido does train against attacks from behind, but these are mostly bear hugs or wrist grabs. Sometimes the attack consists of uke approaching from the front to go around behind nage. This is pretty far from realistic. An attack from behind is going to be an actual attack, and if someone goes to attack you from behind, I am extremely skeptical they would grab your wrists or elbows with their hands. If they do bear hug you, it will be to lift you up and slam you on the ground. Otherwise, they will probably push you down, punch you in the head, or tackle you. You can easily train the push or the tackle. Just have Uke do this and see how your Aikido fares. The punch in the head is taking reality to a whole new level. The reality of the world is you may take the first shot before being able to bring your martial art into the picture. Despite all you've heard about situational awareness, negotiation, and de-escalation, you might be on the ground or staggering from a punch before you get to make the first move. It's good to do some reps which start after you took a simulated shot or are successfully tackled or pushed down. First, you are toughening up a bit and realizing that dojo pristine practice is quite a bit different from how real violence goes down. And second, you are discovering the additional skills and knowledge about how to adapt the techniques you learned and practiced to the unusual circumstances of the chaos of violence. If your instructor scoffs at the idea or benefit of such training and says something like, just don't let yourself get into that situation in the first place, then realize your instructor is ignorant about real violence. While staying out of bad situations like that is ideal, the world is not ideal. We might get caught in such a situation, despite our best efforts to remain alert and aware. Training for circumstances like that gives you far more adaptability and competence than being good only under ideal conditions. Many a fighter got beat when taken out of their comfort zone. As a martial artist, consider making your comfort zone so big that it's very difficult for anyone to take you out of it. That means training in the ugliness of chaos so that you can remain calm and navigate your way out. Dealing with violence is terrifying enough. Doing it in an environment you are not familiar with is far worse. This is one reason wrestlers and grapplers love taking people to the ground. Anyone who isn't familiar with grappling is nearly helpless on the ground. It's not easy to train for ambushes because they happen when your mind is not ready for them. When you step onto the dojo mat, your mind gets into the mode of being ready and assuming an attack is coming. When you walk around a corner in your normal day, 
chances are you do not expect to be physically ambushed. One way to build the mental and physical bridge for instant response is through visualization. Let's say you walk into a stairwell and you imagine an attacker there who takes a swing at you. You execute whatever response you've been trained to deal with that attack. Just get used to seeing, deciding, and executing as directly as possible. Sure, the attacker is imaginary. What you are building is the speed of perception, decision, and action. This is sometimes referred to as the OODA loop. It's a way for you to build your body's ability to react quickly when needed. I just suggest you do this when no one's looking, or you might feel kind of foolish. This is a way to get more reps in than you would at the dojo alone, and to get a feel for how moving in a real-world environment would go without having to carve out extra time in your schedule to train in them. Why not take advantage of the real-world environment when you can? If you are shy about doing this, at least visualize your response and movement and see if you would have room to do it successfully. I think you will find that this is an interesting mental exercise and exploration. There's far more to training for reality than merely pounding on pads and sparring. Sure, they have their place too, but there are a lot of useful and fun ways to train which build a comfort level with reality-based applications of your martial tools. I'm going to continue this topic and cover training and protective gear for the sake of safety. Just padding up and going hard is not as productive as you might think. I'll be sharing my thoughts and experiences with this in the next episode. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There's a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.